Welcome to Robert Hunt Financial Market Update, where the, um, if you really want to go to um, our house, you can to invest. Thank you, Bobby, for that reminder to our various listeners. We are omni-channel here at the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. Yes, there's a digital platform here with the podcast, but there's a storefront as well. So you are welcome to come in via either channel. It's a great week for the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. We've got some wonderful news to cut through for you, the listener. And we do take that news that can be confusing, misleading, and take you off course. We make it actionable, understandable, and clear. We're going to look at a Jason Zweig article on want to be the stock market, avoid the cost of being human. One of our favorites and a great topic. Now, this one I'm bringing back from a few weeks ago. We had a faithful listener to the podcast lament that I did not discuss this article because it was a Wall Street Journal article with this headline, How to Grab a 0% Tax Rate. If there was ever a clickbait article from the Wall Street Journal, here it was, but it merits discussion. And we're here for that. So we're reaching back in time at the request of a faithful listener. You know who you are. And then we're going to end with what I've felt this week on the advisory side, which is a proclivity to discuss gold and its role in your portfolio and what ways you should own it, if you should own it at all. So we're going to close with gold. Should you own it? Should you buy it? If you do buy it, what should it look like? So at the top, we're going to see, do you want to beat the stock market? Now, this is what it doesn't mean. So you get a hammer and you smash it on the stock market. And then if it's not down yet, you um, get like a coin and then you throw it down on it. And then if, and then if it um, and then if still doesn't work, you get, um, you get this big bomb and throw it at it. Thank you, Lucy. I think... By beating the stock market, they actually mean not physically beating the stock market, but actually having a rate of return that exceeds the index. Okay, Mr. Zwig is pointing out in this article, headline, want to beat the stock market, avoid the cost of being human, professional fund managers labor under handicaps that individual investors don't face. Make sure you manage your portfolio differently than they do. Now, here at the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update, you know one of our favorite topics is highlighting the deficiencies of active money management. It's pretty easy to do. We look at the Spiever report in the past. We'll look at other various other studies. Well, here we go. A Jason Zwig article. He outlined another study. So he says there's a new study, like we needed it, that looked at returns of more than 7,800 U.S. stock mutual funds from 1991 to 2020. It measured their returns against those of a market matching S&P 500, exchange trade fund, and the total U.S. stock market and he listed out the various things. And it actually was better than what the speed report data is. So it showed uh, 24% of these active funds in that time period beat the index. So I, that deserves uh, inspection because the SPIVA, as you know, is a bit lower, like 5 or 10. Now, Zwig says, here are the problems. This is why you can't beat the index. He says fees are part of the problem. Typical fund charged a bit more than 1% in the study. 
So the study's authors was a finance professor, Hendrik Bessembinder of Arizona State, Michael Cooper of Utah, and Feng Zhang of Southern Methodist University. Hometown, hometown guy for us. So the typical fund returned an average of 7.7% annually over the three decades after fees. Fund investors, now this deserves explanation, earned only 6.9% annually because of the chronic compulsion of, to chase hot performance and flee when it gets cold. This happens all the time. And this is actually going to be related to the folks that want to buy gold right now. But what happens is when a fund does really well, more money piles into it. And effectively, you start buying at the top. When a fund does poorly, people pull money. So this is buy high and sell low behavior. So that's why even though the stated return of the fund might be 7.7, the actual returns of the investors are lower. And they call this the cost of being human. And catch this number. The study found investors sacrificed, you're going to be sitting down for this one, 1.02 trillion in wealth by investing in funds run by stock pickers instead of buying and holding the market cap as if you have 500. Did you hear it, folks? I have not heard this figure in nominal dollar terms before. This is just one study. One trillion dollars, 1.02 trillion. I, it's tough to even put our minds around that number. Um, that's a lot of Chipotle burritos. That's uh, a lot of, I don't know, what's your favorite consumption item? Multiply it by a lot. So that's a trillion bucks that literally just vanished. As Mr. Bogle called it, a, uh, he called it a skimming off the top of the casino. So it's gone. For you, the investor, it's gone. But this great point Zwig brings out here is, why else for the underperformance? He says another factor is at work, and I agree. The total market index funds have about 4,000 stocks. But various fund managers feel the pressure to be much choosier than that. And on average, in these study, actually according to Morningstar, they had 160 stocks. I'm going to say that again. The index had 4,000 stocks. These individual funds, according to Morningstar, 160 stocks. But what's the story? There are only a few super stocks, they call them, that have risen in value by 10,000% or more over the course of decades. So the same Professor Bessembinder, which sounds like a character on the board game Clue, Professor Bessembiner shows that less than half of all stocks even generate positive returns over their publicly traded lifetimes. Ooh, I'll say that again. If you ever wonder why you're so bad at stock picking, I used to wonder this. I thought it was just me. I thought I was deficient in some manner. Maybe I just didn't have what it took. The more I look into the stock picking game, the more I realize, no, this is going to be tough for everybody. So get, so I'm going to read that again. Get this. It's tough to believe, but nearly half of the market's return come from those small number of stocks. Less than half of all stocks generate a positive return over their lifetimes. Less than half. Only 4.3% of stocks created all the net gains in the U.S. market between 1926 and 2016. Let me read that again. 4.3% of stocks created all the net gains in the U.S. market between 1926 and 2016. The article explains, and I agree, that means searching for the next super stock is like hunting for a few needles in an immense field of haystacks. Bogle, John Bogle always tells us, buy the whole haystack, buy the whole haystack. He said it again and again and again. But doesn't this highlight it? Can you imagine if you spent 80 hours a week looking for the 4.3% of stocks? Ooh. Ooh, that's tough. That's tough. So, if you are constrained, as these active managers are, to hold only a universe of 160 stocks, it is probable, highly likely, 
that those 4.3% of stocks that are contributing to basically all the gains are not in your portfolio and say, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. So, now you might just say, well, Robert, <clears throat> why don't we simply select the super stocks and not mess at all with these laggards? Let's pick the winners. You've, you you got to take Statistics 101 here. This is tough. I don't know that a quick podcast will be able to explain this, but if there's a universe of 4,000 stocks, only 4.3% of those are going to contribute to the overall lifetime return. And you say, I'm only going to pick the good ones. Yeah, that's what everyone else says. We're all looking at the same data. Unless you're in Congress and where insider trading is allowed, that's your hot political take of the day, you really don't have inside information. And if you do, it's illegal. Again, unless you're in Congress. So aren't you thankful that we don't constrain ourselves the way these professional money managers are? And aren't you glad you aren't messing around in the mud trying to do these 160 stocks? So Zwig ends the article with what I find to be outright heresy, but, but, huh, there's a silver lining here, right? So he says, hey, search for super stocks from smaller, unfamiliar firms that have proven ability to raise prices without losing business. So, okay, that violates our efficient market theory. That's okay. Limit yourself to a handful of possibilities. Now, this is where I love what he says. Haha. Don't put more than a total of 5% of your money in them and never add new money, even if they go up. That way, you can make a lot if you land a big winner, but you can't lose much on a loser. So I, I'm going to translate this and call this the 5% rule. We're going to say, hey, if you want to be a stock picker, okay, all right. No more than 5% of your net worth. And oh, by the way, if you if you can be content to just play a phantom game, meaning you just, you're making imaginary stock trades and you track your your, your performance and see if you're good, that's even better. Whatever it takes for you to index your money and sit on it for 30 years, I'm in favor of. So if that means you need a 5% fund money looking for the super, I was about to say super spreader. Hmm. Glad that's over. But super producer stocks, well, I think you're just going to do better practicing instead of spending your money on it. I, I just, I don't like that rabbit hole you would go down. So keep indexing, friends. Keep indexing. Now, we have our How to Grab a 0% Tax Rate article. Who doesn't want to learn more about this? This is by Laura Saunders. Subheadline, the zero rate on investment income is often overlooked. Make sure it's in your tax toolkit. So, this is a strategy that is popular amongst the FIRE community. FIRE standing for Financially Independent Retire Early. What this is, and we're not going to, before I read the article, it is the case that investment income, if it is below a certain threshold, is not taxed by the federal government. Okay? This isn't some big secret. The headline makes it sound, wow. But this is where the article does say, it's been in effect since 2008, and 11 million filers were about 7% qualified for it in 2020 according to the IRS data. So, the 0% rate is one that requires that you don't earn a lot of money by the IRS's standard. Now, I think it's a lot of money, but the income limits for the 0% rate are higher than they seem. Nominally, the rate, this is the article reads, nominally the rate disappears for single filers with taxable income above 44000 So if you make more than 44000 you're out of this deal. 
joint filing couples can have income above 89000 for 2023. So you can engineer your income okay, in such a manner that you do not pay tax on your income. Now, I do think, I do think this article merits our, our inspection and discussing it because it, it, it talks about these examples, okay? So, in these various examples, these folks who were able to live frugally, Dave Hollowell, a 60-year-old retired computer programmer living in San Fran, his income has been in the 0% bracket for dividends and capital gains since retiring in 2013. So, he says he's not into flashy cars or watches, and he pays no tax. So how does he do it? You just use investment income. So if you've got a portfolio and it's producing dividends, and you can decide to sell a certain amount of your stocks and have capital gains, you keep that number below those thresholds I mentioned, you're not going to pay taxes. Okay? Now, this doesn't work for folks who have big required minimum distributions or big pension fund disbursements or their social securities kicked in and it's a big number. Ultimately, those numbers add up and you get bounced from this. So, I don't, I don't see this as a, oh wow, you know, let's engineer our life around this tax strategy. But I will link the article. You're welcome to read it. There's a lot more nuance here than what I'm giving because it's taxes. So there are all sorts of exceptions, all sorts of wrinkles. But basically, if you can engineer your income, you can actually take home a decent amount of cash and not pay a nickel in tax. We'll see how long it lasts. I don't know. But it does highlight, and I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. There's a gentleman I read that highlights the merits of the brokerage account. In our country, particularly in financial spaces, we are very infatuated with the IRA, individual retirement account, the 401k, all these carve-outs we feel the government has given us. However, as a reminder, what the government giveth, it can take it away and it ultimately can tax it. So your 401k, for example, if you have a traditional 401k, you turn 72 and a half, it's time for those RMDs, required minimum distributions. That money's coming whether you like it or not. And so that might mess up this little strategy here. Whereas with a brokerage account, you've got control. You can engineer. You can do tax loss harvesting. So if behavioral finance was not an aspect of our financial lives, and it certainly is, I think I'd recommend the brokerage account more as a long-term savings vehicle because of its flexibility, and because of the inflexibility of the 401k and the IRA. Now, I like the 401k and our Roth and regular IRA because it's a forced savings account. That's that behavioral side. It's just automatic investment. It's great, out of sight, out of mind. But all things being equal, is it really that advantageous? Eh, not really. If you can truly trust yourself not to rob Peter to pay Paul on those brokerage accounts and really let them be long-term vehicles for you, I like them a lot because of the flexibility of capital. You can borrow against it. Now, you don't have to be careful there. You can use it for starting a business. You can use it for all sorts of things, which admittedly can be a temptation, but the more I do this, the more I look with suspicion on strategies that involve paying a bunch of tax today in the hopes that you don't pay it tomorrow. 
That would involve large Roth conversions. And so this article brings that to the fore. It kind of lets us see, oh yeah, there are other ways to save for retirement. Other than these programs the government gives us, we can actually just use a brokerage account and it kind of works just fine. And I'm going to close with what I've been hearing a lot this week in particular is gold. Now, why gold? Well, a few articles have crossed the screen for some folks and they've brought them to me saying, hey, Robert, what if, what if the federal government creates this digital currency? Or, hey, Robert, what if the government keeps printing money? What about these very large deficits? This is all hitting the news lately. What sort of soundness of money, what sort of confidence can I have in the U.S. dollar? For all, for any of these articles, what if I lose control over it? What if, what if it just evaporates in value? Ah, I see. And then gold it comes into the question. Should, should this be a tool for me? Now, my first thought is no. Keep it simple. Productive assets, and we align with Warren Buffett on this, a great way to hedge against inflation is to own operating companies who have strong margins and can operate with profitability because they're, they have purchasing power and pricing power and their profits will increase. And that's my simple answer. The index fund is sufficient. If that is not sufficient for you and for various investor psychology reasons it might not be, it is permissible to buy gold. But my advice is to treat it like a stuffed animal. Only buy as much as you think will make you sleep well at night so that you can continue to invest in index funds or whatever productive assets are at your disposal. Now, what I will guide folks to is, hey, maybe you can just buy like a coin or two. Just a coin or two. A gold Krugerrand, perhaps, which is a, it's an ounce of gold minted in South Africa it's an ounce, so it's about $2,000. So if you've got a safe, and again, that's why I don't, you know, you gotta be careful with gold. It can be lost if you hold it. If you've got it, but you got a safe and you feel like you can keep it safely at your home and that does it for you, I say go ahead. Now, if you're a Dallasite, I actually called around to a couple gold exchanges and coin places and they, they said they were kind of short Krugerrand. So made me think a bunch of other people have this idea. Bunch of other people have this idea. But I found a, a group, Dallas Gold and Silver Exchange, big group, talked with uh, their guys, and they were great. So I would just say be very careful when you're buying these products. Some of the other guys I talked to, I thought, I don't think they know what they're talking about, and I worry about what price you'd get. So before you do it, go online, see what the best price for a gold Krugerrand is. If it's close to that, just buy it, put it in your safe, and whenever you watch the news or hear the stories about the U.S. dollar eroding in value or the government seeking to lay claim to your dollars, you go, you know, you're welcome to hold those coins. And if that keeps you going, I affirm the decision. If you want a larger portfolio to be gold, you just got to look at the long-term charts. It's not a pretty picture. Gold over the long haul. It just doesn't do very well for stocks. Stocks just absolutely trounce gold. So keep it simple if you can. Don't introduce new asset classes um, and beware because anytime a bunch of people want to buy gold, probably not the best time to buy it. But if it keeps you on the straight and narrow, I'm fine with it. So as always, keep your costs low, keep your investments.